Welcome back to another episode of the Jewish Moves Podcast. This week's episode is with Susie Fishbane. She's a legendary author of the Kosher Palette, Kosher by Design, Kosher by Design Entertains, Kosher by Design Lightens Up, Kosher by Design Short on Time, and so many other cookbooks that have provided you with the recipes for your meals on Shabbos and Yantin. She's also a culinary teacher. Susie, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for joining. I guess we'll start from the beginning, which is as a kid growing up or once you became a public school teacher, were cookbooks ever something you dreamed of making? Uh, it is, it's not anything that I ever thought that I would do for my life. Um, I was a fourth grade public school teacher. I have a master's in science. I taught in a fabulous uh, elementary school out in Oceanside, Long Island. Uh, and I loved it. And it's a job I thought I would do forever. And then um, I got married and my husband and I moved, well, first to the city and then our rent got hiked so high that <laughs> we said, this is crazy. We, we should use that money and pay it down on, you know, pay it to a mortgage, not to rent, which uh, if only I could tap myself now and say, you should have just bought that apartment. But um, we moved out to New Jersey and I was commuting out to Oceanside, Long Island from, um, from Livingston, New Jersey. And I was spending four, sometimes five hours a day in my car. And that became really undoable. It was really brutal. So um, I ended up having to leave that job and I found myself with time on my hands uh, living in a, in a house in suburbia and I did not yet have children. So um, when you find yourself in that situation, that it's not a lot of, it's hard to, to meet people socially. So I went knocking on my shul's door to say, hey, willing volunteer, you know, are you looking for help on anything? And Shuls don't often get, you know, knocks on the door like that. And uh-huh. within like six months, I was a sisterhood president. And it turned out that I had a knack for fundraising. I was just, I don't know if that was a, just something I was good at. And that put a bullseye right on my head. And a few months later, uh, the local uh, Jewish day school uh, right, uh, came knocking to say, you know, hey, your friend Sandra has agreed to co-edit a, a cookbook if you're willing to be her partner. Um, for our uh, for our day school, the Kushner Academy, would, would you be interested? And at the time, I did love to cook and I did love to entertain, but I did know nothing about, you know, writing cookbooks, but the idea did sound fabulous to me. Um, but we had agreed that it would, we wouldn't just want to do the typical cookbook. Because if you, if you think back at, to the time, uh, and you're talking 20 something years ago, uh, there was almost no food network. Um, there was no, almost no internet. So, you know, the majority of um, cookbooks that that people were using were uh, were from organizations and they were beloved, you know, recipes that went around communities, but they were not beautifully done. They were not carefully edited or tested and they weren't necessarily modern and elegant, you know, food. So uh, Sandra and I said, um, okay, we will take this on. And to, together with the help of about 800 people who submitted recipes and a whole lot of people who participated in tastings and testings and, uh, and, and, and lots of different parts that come together in making a cookbook, um, the community, and it was more than just the Livingston community, it was all the communities that make up the Joseph Kushner Hebrew Academy produced the kosher palette. You with me so far? Yeah. So... <laughs> When you self-publish a book, it's like taking your book report to Staples. So we had ordered, I think, 5,000 books. And um, what do you know? Uh, 5,000 books were delivered, but the school was not in the cookbook business and they didn't have office people that were gonna take this on as a business. So uh, the 5,000 books were delivered to um, 
to Sandra's garage. And on the floor of my bedroom, um, I set up the office of the kosher palette. And if you bought one of the original 50,000 copies of the kosher palette, you absolutely spoke to me on the phone and I processed your credit card. That's literally like you would place an order. I would, you know, take care of it. Sandra would wrap it up and one of our husbands would drive it over to uh, the Livingston post office. My husband used to love that. He would like take his Jeep. They would like wave him around the back. Like he was some VIP because <laughs> it was an everyday occurrence that they were delivering packages. So did that for a while. And just through the whole, the whole process, I just, there was just something about working with the food and the photography and the editing and even the selling of the book. And I decided that this is what I wanted to do um, for my life. So, um, six days a week, I was selling the kosher palette, as I said, out of my bedroom and not just to, to people, but to Judaica stores, to, um, you know, every reform and conservative, uh, synagogue across the country had some sort of Judaica store within it. So it's a gift shops. Um, and that really was taking up a whole lot of my time. And I decided I wanted to do this professionally. And um, I was in talks with Grand Central Terminal, which was reopening in all of its grandeur, a pet project of Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And the whole hop of Grand Central's reopening was gonna be about food. It was anchored by like really impressive restaurants. And there was gonna be a whole, um, like a caravan of food of like the best of the best of, of New York. And my job was to curate a book that represented all those things and to get people talking about Grand Central's opening and, um, you know, get news coverage and, you know, lots of buzz about it. And the papers were supposed to be signed for that on September 12th, 2001. So that project dried up basically overnight and I was back in my bedroom selling the cookbooks and I'm on the phone with Tuvia from Tuvia's bookstore in Muncie. And he says to me, so when are you gonna write your next cookbook? And I said, well, Tovia, I lost my first job before I even got started. And he says, what happened? So I tell him this Grand Central Terminal story. And he thinks for a minute and he says, hmm, it's because you never should have been writing a trade cookbook for the Goyim. <laughs> so I said, well, Tovia, do you know anyone in the in the kosher world that's, you know, that would hire me? And he said, I'm going to see if I can get you an interview with my friends over at Art Scroll. Um, you know, I buy all my sperm from them. Let me see. You know, they've been for 30 years, been looking to do a cookbook. They never found the right fit. So um, I went in for my interview and I met Rabbi Mayer's Ladowitz and uh, at the other end of the table was his then young son. We were both young at the time, uh, Rabbi Gedalia's Ladowitz. Um, and they interviewed me and I don't think that Rabbi Ladowitz was quite convinced that I was necessarily the right fit. But Gedalia turned to his dad and said, you know what dad, I have a really good feeling about this. Let me take her on, I, this will be my project. <laughs> and um off we went and for 20 something years I used to say not not only do I have my own pride and career on my on you know you know on, on my shoulder but I'm schlepping along Gedalia's Lanowitz but boy it was like just a, a match made in, in heaven we we for 20 something years have just thank God only had success and um really enjoyed working with each other and I did end up winning Rabbi Zlatowitz over he definitely got a kick out of me <laughs> you know, a few months into the project and um, it's just been nachas. And now Art Scroll is the go-to place. If you are a kosher cookbook author, they are your dream publisher. So in a very long answer to your question, that is, uh, that's the beginning of my career. And from oh, the that's... sale of the very first kosher by design, I knew 
this was going to be it for me. Like, I, I, I love this. Okay, that sounds like a lot. When we go back to the first cookbook, when you had 800 recipes submitted, did you assume everybody's recipe was going to taste okay? Or did you personally make each recipe and then try it? It wasn't me personally. It was it was all the communities that made up um, that made up the Kushner school. So in different communities, like one one community took the appetizers and um, Sandra and I pulled out like these are the ones that we thought had the 25 best shot of being, you know, a, a doable or a good recipe. And then people tasted them and we, people voted. And that's, you know, how it was decided what was what was in, but it was very obvious from reading, you know, some, some of the legendary ones were like, there was an apple pie with a hard boiled egg in it. Like we weren't going to waste anybody's ingredients or time to make that recipe. And there were a lot of things like that. A lot of things like dump your duck sauce over your chicken and bake it for four hours. So just for as people who loved food, we, there were things that we just knew we weren't ever going to include. So um, yeah. And, and lots of people participated in those parties and that's sort of how, you know, those, 800 recipes got pared down to what we ended up using. Wow. And you mentioned your contract with Artscroll. What happens after that? You signed a contract and you go home. Do you start coming up with nine kosher cookbooks right away or was there something more to it? Actually, when I, you know, when I look at the rainbow of spines, because, you know, it is the kosher palette, but then it's nine of my own books, nine kosher by designs. And then actually there's a bookend on the end called the best of kosher, which was a collaboration of all 13 art scroll authors. But when I look at that rainbow of spines of my own kosher by designs, it really represents the timeline of my adult life. You know, the original kosher by design was all about celebrating Jewish holidays. And as a young married person starting a family, I often hosted the holidays in my house. Um, and so much of that stuff is worked into that book. And then the next book was about all the good stuff between Jewish holidays, your your anniversary parties, your throwing people baby showers, uh, my parents' big anniversary. And that book was all about the parties of your of your life. And then by that point, thank God, I had three out of my four kids had been born and I was finding myself, you know, quite short on time as somebody who was working and flying and, you know, doing shows all over the place. And the book Short on Time was written. It was, it was the reality of my life. I had little kids in my kitchen. That's when Kids in the Kitchen was written. So the books really were a representative of what I was experiencing in my own life and my realities, um, you know, making Pesach for the first time was the impetus for writing Passover by design. Um, that, you know, I could, I could keep going, but, you know, it, all the way to all the doors that were opened up through my career. You know, one of the things when I look at my career that I'm really proud of is that um, I was kind of fearless. I, I never, I almost never said no to anything, uh, even things that I really had no right saying yes to. Um, you know, for example, I'm not a trained chef. Um, you know, it's a little chutzpah to stand in front of a room full of audiences as a, a, a room full of an audience as a cooking expert, when I am not a trained chef, and I had never even taken a cooking class like the people in the audience were sitting at. But yet I started doing those classes. And I found that people really like my real world advice, like from not a professional chef's kitchen. And so it was almost like by by design then that I never did take a professional cooking class because what I was finding, and I also never upgraded my kitchen to be a commercial kitchen. I was finding that people were responding to the fact that I was a person in the kitchen the way they're a person in the kitchen. And I don't have a six burner stove and 9,000 million BTUs and, you know, six different uh, ovens. Like I was working on regular appliances in a small, you know, relatively small space uh, the way they are. And I think that that 
um, reality was what made me popular and what made my recipes work for people. Professional chefs honestly really don't write very good cookbooks and a lot of them use ghostwriters for that reason because they know so much and they take so much for granted that um, they can't write regular recipes. Too many steps, too much chopping, too, too many components that for them it's not a big deal. But for me, I, there's not a recipe that doesn't even tell you how much salt. You're never going to see a pinch of salt from me. I always say what it is. It's a quarter of a, or, 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 or it's an eighth of a teaspoon. Um, I basically assume that somebody who is trusting me to buy my book is maybe opening up to a page and maybe has never cooked anything in their life. And that's my responsibility is to make sure that the money they spent on the ingredients and the time they spent in the kitchen totally pays off and that the recipes work the first time and every time that somebody makes them. And that is the feedback. And that is why these books became so popular because people knew that they could rely on them. That's really nice. How do you come up with a recipe? As a kid, I kind of envisioned a chef sitting with a bunch of ingredients and then something pops out for them. Was it that simple or is there a more of a science to it? It has, it has gotten, it has gotten simpler over the years as I have, I definitely am more intuitive as a cook you know what what, what I, the story that i was getting to uh, uh, the the question ago was that in being fearless it opens up doors to things and to experiences um that i never would have had had i been like well no i don't think that i should do that like for example i was invited to the epcot international food and wine festival to teach amongst really famous chefs and really i had i was totally outclassed i had no business saying yes to that but i did and that experience put me like for multiple days in the background of really really talented chefs and i picked up so many recipe ideas from that experience and the the finale book of my series is called kosher by design brings it home so one of the other uh, um, ventures that i went out on about 7 years ago was i started taking people on culinary adventures um to uh places all over the country all over the world I'm sorry not in the country all over the world my sweet spot is is uh is Italy um and I do culinary tours in Florence uh Italy uh now also in Milan Lake Como I've incorporated Rome um I do uh, culinary tours to Israel I was a guest on other people's tours in in France and in other and Cancun and in other places and I bring that up because um so much of what I learn outside of the American kitchen, I bring back. A lot of it is in Kosher by Design brings it home, but some of the sensibilities are just now ingrained in me and in the recipes that I think about and 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 teach and talk about and write about. Um, you know, traveling and opening your eyes to other palates and other cultures gives you the 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 ideas. You know, um, if if all you're doing is wandering in the same, you know five spices that you grew up with your palate is never going to expand so your recipe writing is never going to expand but by traveling different places and meeting other people specifically chefs um there's so much that i learned from that that they i then incorporated into new recipes you know recipe ideas that i would never have you know i never would have learned of or thought about had i not been exposed to people who those were the lifeblood of their you know time in the kitchen and in their family histories you know when you learn um how to make italian meatballs from an italian they look very different than you know your mother's sweet and sour meatballs from shabbos uh the technique the ingredients so that's how new recipes came about from you know different exposures and experiences and surrounding myself with people that i could really learn from it sounds like a lot of different places to draw inspiration from but 
Despite all your experiences, were there ever times you drew blanks and got writer's block, or were there always new recipes popping out? Akiva, if you asked me to write a cookbook today, I don't think I could say yes. I don't know how I did it. I'll tell you what, what my work schedule life was like. I, I, I would finish a cookbook. I would take one day off. Rabbi Zlata would call me and say, what's the next topic? I would give him the next topic and I would get back in my kitchen. And I think if I had taken any time off between books, I don't think I could have ever started again. I, I treated it like a full-time job. I would spend, I would say sometimes like six to seven or eight hours a day in my kitchen working on developing testing sometimes i would get an idea and i would keep serving incarnations of it to my family because i just thought the idea was so fabulous and it just wasn't gelling um and they would finally say like you know ma you just got to give it up like move on just move on <laughs> so um yeah i just i kept my head down i just i did my work i just it was all food all the time and when i wasn't working and developing and writing in my kitchen, I was out exploring. I would wander the streets of the city and read restaurant menus and go to the library and research other cultures, food. And um, yeah, uh, you know, anytime that I had an opportunity to be, um, you know, my husband and I had gone, I had, I had gotten a show in Panama and my husband came with me. We made a little vacation out of it. I made sure to like go to their, their supermarkets, the kosher and the non-kosher to see like what ingredients, you know, are people using here? What is the kosher community importing um, from Europe, you know, that I haven't seen yet? So um, it's actually a, a very cute story because I definitely um, brought some ingredients to the attention um, of the public. And just about a, a year or two ago, a friend of mine sent me a why you shear that he had, uh, that he had downloaded. And in it, there was a, a, a Rabbi Leibowitz, I think his name was talking about the Agatha and um, he goes off on this whole tangent and he says, it's like, um, you know, when the new Susie Fishbein cookbook comes out and uh, your wife sends you out on a Thursday night and you're looking for some obscure ingredient like uh, like uh, pomegranate molasses and you're and you're looking and you're looking and you're up and down every aisle and you bump into your friend and he's mumbling and grumbling and he looks at you and he says, Susie Fishbein? And you say, yeah. And he says, I hate Susie Fishbein. <laughs> so... Um, you know, I used to get phone calls from managers of supermarkets saying, don't do that to us again. Don't put new ingredients in your cookbooks that you don't tell us about first. We want to have the stuff on the shelves when the books come out. So it sort of also was so much of my mazel was in timing that the kosher world exploded. I mean, you look at these Facebook groups of kosher restaurant foodies and, and what kind of kosher restaurants are out there now, like 20 years ago, 17 years ago. There was not a lot of options out there, and there certainly was not a lot of cross-culture in, in kosher. So um, I kind of came about as all that exploded. So new ingredients and even, you know, different sauces and spices and cuts of meat, like I came about during all of that. So it was like the, the, the perfect explosion of, you know, of, of new items and, and things to work with. That's interesting. You mentioned the Disney Food Festival, the Panama Vacation, and the food tours you've been able to be a guest on. Is there a moment from your cooking career that's been a favorite and stands out as the best among the others? Oh, I have so many. You know, I've, you know, to be a, a guest, I, I've been to probably 40 out of the states in this country. Um, basically, for 17 years, once a week, I was doing a cooking show somewhere in this country. So, um, 
I got to see how Jews all across this country live, reform, conservative, orthodox, um, and get invited into their homes, into their shuls, into their JCCs. Um, that just was such a privilege and so eye-opening. And I was always so welcomed. You know, my husband always says to me, like, your job is like pure nachas, like everything about it. You just, you go places, people are so happy. They're so happy to talk to you, to meet you. Like there's no downside. And I agree with him. There was, has never, thank God, been a downside to any part of this career. The travel is just like the the cherry on the cake, but even just those regular shows and and being invited into other communities and um and just meeting thousands and thousands of people, I don't know. It's just been um, it's just it's it's been a joy. And obviously things like the Epcot International Food and Wine Festival, I was invited uh, as an honored guest to the Obama White House um at, for Jewish Heritage Month. Wow. Um, it's just so many so many highlights. Uh, being a featured celebrity guest on on cruise ships, um, I, I don't know. It's just uh, it's just my career has just thank God it's just been a, a joy, just a total joy. I am so grateful to Hashem and for the for for the opportunities that I've been afforded. That's amazing. When you were coming out with the cookbooks, would there be times you go to someone for a Shabbos meal or to an event or to a restaurant? You taste the food and then you realize this isn't what you had been coming out with and the standard you created. I guess sometimes when when the other people who have been interviewed go somewhere that has the same thing they produce, they don't feel like the event is ruined, but it's a bit of a letdown. Would you ever go to somebody for a Shabbos meal and be a little turned off or disappointed? Never. Never. I am I am not a harsh judge. I do love food. So it's very easy to please me. I know how hard it is to put out a meal. I would never um it's just, that's just not who I am. Um, I never use my name when I make a restaurant reservation. I don't, I don't want, you know, I don't want anybody looking specifically at that. Um, I feel self-conscious when somebody does know I'm in their restaurant and then they're watching what I'm eating. If I, if I'm not absolutely loving something, I feel bad leaving it over on the plate. Um, so, you know, no, um, I, I know how hard it is to put out a meal. So, um, I'm I'm so happy when people invite me. I, I love being a guest in other people's homes. That's nice. And uh, for people who are listening, who are inspired by your cookbooks and want to come out with their own recipes, but don't know where to get started, do you have a method they can use to think of something or make changes that could then lead to their own recipe? So one, one of the things people say, like, well, what were your go-to books? So Martha Stewart, Ina Garten, those were icons at the time when I was getting started. And I think that they are both in, incredible in, in what they do. But probably the most valuable thing that I did was really um, read books like Culinary Artistry, which was a book that talks about um, flavor profiles and what what things go together. So if you have a piece of lamb, what complements lamb? Well, white wine, rosemary, garlic, like there are certain flavor profiles that go together. So it's really more educating yourself about flavor profiles and spice palettes and what brings out the best in other ingredients. Um, and then obviously learning techniques, um, roasting versus braising versus stewing, you know, getting yourself knife skills. Like there, it's really more about the building blocks of cooking than developing the perfect recipe because you have nothing to draw upon to develop the perfect recipe if you don't have ingredients at your disposal or know what works well together.
I hope you're enjoying the episode. This is just a quick ad to let you know that Jew Schmooze collaborated with the From Merch brand to release Jew Schmooze t-shirts in four different colors and a Jew Schmooze mug. You can check it out all online and deliver it directly to your house at frommerch.com. F-R-U-M-M-E-R-C-H.com. Make sure to check it out and uh, get some yourself. Interesting. And I guess we'll conclude with two more questions. One of them is, I didn't cook so much as a kid, but when I did, I was always way off from the estimated time frame for how long recipes would take to make, whether it be uh, something expected for 30 minutes or 40 minutes. I never hit it. How did you come up with the amount and decide how long it would take everybody to create? So that's really, you know, that's a really difficult thing to do because, right, your 20 minutes could be somebody else's 40 minutes. What I take, you know, it takes me... 40 seconds to chop a carrot. It could take somebody three and a half, four solid minutes to chop a carrot. So the short on time book was, there was, there was no, I didn't give time and say five minute recipes, 10 minute recipes, but they were definitely quick, quick and easy. Um, the teens and 20 something book was really meant for people who don't have a lot of equipment and obviously not a ton of time. So I never really gave you like five minute recipes because I do know that that's sort of not really doable because people's skills are so different. Um, I would say if you're looking personally, you know, if, if you are slow in the kitchen, you just, you want to use, you know, recipes that don't have a lot of chopping involved or a lot of, you know, prep involved. You're looking to get more flavor out of spices than out of, you know, natural ingredients. You know, that's why the lightens up book is, is probably the, not the most difficult, but the most time intensive book, because when you're talking about eating a healthier lifestyle, you really do need to start with everything from scratch. There's no popping open a jar of anything. So the recipes definitely take a little bit longer. Um, but you get the hang, you know, you get the hang of cooking the more time you spend in the kitchen and you learn where you can take shortcuts and what can I do today so that I don't have to do something tomorrow. You know, if I cook up two cups of quinoa today, how can I use it in five different ways throughout this week that my family won't recognize it as the same dish over and over. So that's really more where I try to, you know, sort of make an impression, like even on my own kids, like what, what can you prep once that then you can reincarnate a whole bunch of times, you know, it's like a building block kind of a recipe. Okay. And to conclude, we'll end with the same question that ends every episode, which is you've been interviewed a few other times. You've been asked questions by people all around the world. And every time someone bumps into you, I'm sure they hit you with another question. But despite the fact that you're constantly being hit with questions from all different types of people, there's always things people wish they were asked about, which they never were. So looking back at everything you have been asked, what's a question you've never been asked that you wished you were? And what answer would you give to it? It is funny. In all of the all, all of the, the times that I've been interviewed, um, I don't think anybody has ever asked me, what is my, what is my favorite food to eat? <laughs> People ask me, what's my favorite recipe in my books, which I will never give an answer to because I love every recipe in my books. I never find a contract saying I will deliver uh-huh. 200 new recipes. I deliver a book. And if it's not good enough to be in the book, it's not good enough. So my, I will stand by any one of those recipes um, in, in the book. But my actual favorite food um, to eat and I'm always on the hunt for is the best slice of kosher pizza so wow. um, <laughs> do you have places you could shout out as uh, having the best um I happen to be okay my husband's gonna laugh at this because he says it doesn't he doesn't even think like it tastes like pizza but I happen to love fialkoffs and maybe there's a nostalgia piece of that from being up you know in camp um and I think Bravo does make a good a good slice of pizza but um, I'm always willing to be wowed um, 
as a teenager, Shimon's Pizza in Queens was always my go-to, <laughs> but uh, always on the hunt for, for the next best slice. Thank you again for joining and giving insight to so many different uh, elements and aspects of your career. And everybody make sure to go to your local Jewish store or online and buy uh, the best cookbooks out there from uh, Susie Fishbane. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for listening to this past episode of the Jewish Moves podcast. To get our latest updates and contact us, you can follow us on Twitter at Jews underscore schmooze. If you want to sponsor an upcoming episode, you can reach out to JewsSchmoozMarketing at gmail.com. And if you give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on, that will be tremendously appreciated. Thank you so much, and hope you're looking forward to the next episode also. Mm-hmm.